I'm going to need your guys' help today because what I want to do is I'm going to show some images and I want to see if we can get uh, kind of a pulse on where we're all at uh, as we come into the, into the service today. So let me put the first image up here and we'll see what we can, uh, see what we can uh, decipher from this. So kids, adults, anybody, what does this picture make you think of? Just shout it out. Batteries, okay, I heard batteries. What else? I heard nuclear waste. That's a good, I could see that. I could totally see that. Okay, good. There's a full, there's a sense of fullness here. Okay, let's see the next picture. What's the next picture look like? Uh Uh-oh. Low battery. I'm going to ask a question here. Does this, does this, um, does this what anybody's phone looks like right now? Because this makes me anxious. When I see this, this is what my, my wife's phone looks like a lot. And it really makes me anxious because I'm worried she can't get a hold of me. I can't get a hold of her. Um, what's the next picture look like? What's that, guys? Outlet. Okay. Power outlet. What else? Looks like faces. Yes, it does. Power outlet. Okay. And let's see the last one. What's the last picture? What's that? On. Did I hear on? It's not a, it's not a popsicle, upside down popsicle? Off and on. Okay, I think you're right. That's the power button. Okay. Um, think for a minute, all of you adults, of the picture of the battery. And I want you to picture the red battery. And I want you to answer this question for yourself so you can be honest this morning. You don't have to uh, raise your hands. But how many of you feel like that red battery is representative of how you feel spiritually this morning? Think about that for a minute. If that is true of you, I want you to take note of it because our passage today is going to speak directly to that and it's going to be really helpful for us to see this prayer of Paul and what he's praying when it comes to spiritual strength, when it comes to spiritual power. And so hopefully this image will um, help us in our illustration and in our understanding of this passage this morning. Um, Now as we start... And as we have these images fresh in our mind, I want to let you know what the sermon is not going to be about today. The sermon is not going to be about this. Um, Today's sermon will not be three or four things that you need to do in order to feel spiritually charged. Today's sermon is not going to be about how you need to do uh, a better job of being disciplined in the morning and doing your quiet time so that you can be spiritually full and that your battery is recharged for the day. I'm not going to be giving you a list of how you need to fight sin and do a better job at resisting temptation. I'm not going to give you a list of how you have to pray with greater intensity. And I'm not going to give you this list because it wouldn't work. Maybe it would for a day. Maybe it would for a week or two or maybe two months if you were really spiritually disciplined. But it wouldn't work. And that's why the reason I don't want to give you that list because when we approach our relationship with God in that mindset— it effectively does the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish, and it does the opposite of what Scripture is calling us to do. When we approach God that way, it strips us of spiritual power and spiritual strength, and it can leave us more discouraged, feeling more empty, and feeling more bound by sin. And I care about you, church family, too much to give you that list to try and do in your own strength. And Paul cares about the church too much to give them that list or to pray that for them. And so I want to pray for us as we jump into God's word and as we unpack 
the source of our spiritual power and our spiritual strength. Let's go to him. God, thank you for um, this morning. Thank you for being able to come in and worship and being able to come in as uh, a group, God, as, a, as your church. Uh, we come with thanksgiving and we come with gratitude. God, thank you that you know every one of us as we come into this place this morning. You know what wrestles and challenges we face. You know our weakness and our doubts. Uh, you know the status of our spiritual strength and where we are fully charged, and you know uh, where we are almost depleted. And God, regardless of how we feel coming in here today, uh, we know that the cross is real, and we know that the cross has accomplished uh, so much for us. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would remind us and fill our hearts today, direct us to Christ Jesus, and we pray these things in his name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're just joining us, uh, we are in the book of Ephesians, and we've been marching through this book for the last couple months, and we're going to continue to do so through the rest of our Advent season. And what we need to do today to be able to understand uh, this prayer in chapter 3 is we need to, we have to keep in mind the context of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we really need that context and that background to help us to understand what is being prayed in our passage today. And there are three main themes that we see in the book of Ephesians. And the three themes are this. God has adopted us and saved us by grace through faith, not as a result of works. We see that in chapters 1 and 2. That's one of the hallmark passages of this, of this letter to the, to the Ephesian church, is that God saves us by grace through faith, not as a result of works. And in chapter 1, we saw that he adopts us, that we are uh, part of God's family. So that's the first theme that we see in Ephesians. The second theme is that Christ has united people from all nations to himself. And that he's united us to one another in his church. We see this unity principle in chapters 2 and in chapter 3. And we've covered those two things so far. What we haven't gotten to is to chapters 4 through 6. And the third principle uh, from the book of Ephesians is this. Christians must live as new people. Christians must live transformed lives. And Paul, the author of this letter, has been helping the readers understand that they are adopted into God's family. They are saved by grace through faith. And that this salvation is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles also. That salvation is not just for a certain group of people, it's for all people. And he does this really well, and I want you to have that in mind. I want you to keep that foundation um, in context, because that's so important as he launches now into chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, which is going to be his prayer. And it's a really detailed prayer. Uh, it's a, a prayer of a man who cares deeply about those that he's praying for. And you can tell that. It's really evident that he cares for them because he spent three chapters to date helping them to understand who they are in Christ. He wants them to understand and wants us to understand that in Christ is where our true identity is found. And he does that before he launches into chapters 4, 5, and 6. And 4, 5, and 6 is where he's calling us to live transformed lives. That's what we're going to do the rest of the Advent season. And if you're at all familiar with the book of Ephesians, you know that what he's going to do in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is, is call us to live and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what that means, the translation for that is that we're going to live a transformed life, that, that um, our life is going to show who is at work inside of us. But if you're anything like me, in our flesh... We are so tempted to jump to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and say, God, what is it that I'm supposed to do? 
Give me the to-do list. Give me the do's. Give me the don'ts. I'll do the things I'm supposed to do. I'll try not to do the things that I'm not supposed to do. And then if I do that, if I can accomplish that, then I'll have the spiritual strength and spiritual power that you offer, right? And the answer is no. That's not right. Doesn't that sound somewhat appealing to us, though? Doesn't that sound somewhat appealing to our flesh? If I were to say this morning, here are the top three things you need to do so that you can have this spiritually charged life and have this powerful life. We're drawn to that. We want to work. We want to earn. But fortunately for us, church family, that is not what Paul prays, and it's not what produces that spiritual outcome. It's not what is going to produce power. It's not what's going to produce strength. And so today, instead, we're going to unpack this four-part prayer and see what he actually does pray for this group of believers at Ephesus. And we're going to keep this context of chapters 1, 2, and 3, our identity, in mind as we do so. And what we're going to see as we unpack this is we're going to see how Paul is bowing before the Father to ask for a unified church. He wants to see all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all skin colors experience And know individually, but also collectively, all of us together, as a whole, an ever-expanding understanding of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. That's what he wants us to walk away with. That's what he's praying. He wants us to recognize the power of the Spirit at work inside of us. And so if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to be in the last half, verses 14 through 21. And uh, I'd like to read this passage for you. Uh, There are pew Bibles in front if you need. And this is what he's praying. He says, For this reason, because of those first two themes, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Powerful prayer. And lots here. There's lots going on theologically. Now, not only do I want to unpack the the four elements of what he's praying, but I also want to make sure that we walk away today understanding who Paul is praying to. I want to make sure that we understand how is it that he prays? What is it that he prays? What is the content of his prayer? When is he praying this? That's going to be really significant for us. And why, ultimately, is he praying this? And the reason why, I'll I'll, I'll skip to the chase here a little bit. The reason why is because this group of believers needed to be reminded of these truths. And my guess is that we, too, this morning, need to be reminded of these truths. And so needless to say, we have a lot to cover Um, Let's jump right in. Let's see how does Paul pray. What is, what is uh, the way in which he prays? And we, we see this right off the bat. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so Paul's posture here is really significant. He's literally getting down on his knees. He's taking a position of humility. 
He's taking a, a, a position of intensity and he wants to, to communicate there is something in, a, in, in what I'm about to pray. Um, it was customary for Jews to stand during prayer. And so for him to take this posture is going to communicate to the church at Ephesus like, I'm getting on my knees and I'm asking these things of God for you. That's how important this is. That's the, the gravity of the situation at hand. And he does that um, to, to, to show us what's going on. And as I think about the way that we pray, um, oftentimes it's customary we take our hats off or we hold hands or we fold our hands or we, we bow our heads um, and occasionally we kneel. And I think about our pastor meeting uh, on Mondays. So every Monday we get together for a couple hours and inevitably what we're going to do is we're going to spend time praying. And we pray t- for one another. Uh, we pray for you. We pray for this church. We pray for this city. And uh, there are times when we're praying uh, where we bow our heads, we close our eyes. That's kind of the customary um, way that we pray. But sometimes a need or a burden or something um, that we are rejoicing in uh, happens. And the only appropriate posture is to kneel before God and, and to worship or to make a request. And this is one such instance for Paul. He's kneeling because of the gravity of what he's praying for these believers. It's, it's so palpable to him that he has to get down on his knees before the Father as he prays for true and lasting spiritual power and spiritual strength that he knows is not going to come from them trying harder or giving more effort. And so what we see is the posture in which he prays. And we also see in this opening line who he's praying to. He's praying to God the Father. Um, he's calling God Father and recognizing that he shares and that we share in this membership in a, a privileged family uh, that has heavenly as well as earthly implications for us. He's recognizing that we've been reconciled one to another and that we've been reconciled to God, that we are a church, but that we are also reconciled to God and that we're a family, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And what he's doing here by referencing God as Father is he's, he's directing our attentions back to Ephesians chapter 1, and he wants us to understand, you've been adopted. You are my sons. You are my daughters. You are mine. We are a family. And so we're, 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 we're understanding this relationship to a greater degree that God is our Father. The other thing that we see right off the bat is that the essence of Paul's prayer is for power. He Earlier in this passage, um, earlier in this, this letter, rather, um, he prayed for this as well. You may remember in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he's praying and giving thanks for the church at Ephesus. So he's already prayed for this church. And in the midst of that first prayer, he says um, that he wants them to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. So in the first prayer, he's thanking God for the church at Ephesus, thanking God for these believers, and he's praying that they would understand the immeasurable greatness of the power of God's power toward us. Now, what he's praying for in chapter 3 is something different. He's praying that we would experience that power, that we would know that power. He's, He's praying in a different way. He's asking God now. First he was thanking, now he's asking and saying, would they experience this? Would they know this power within them? And that's the first thing that he's praying, um, is, is for them to, to, to have this experiential, um, knowledge of what this power looks like. What I want to do next is I want to unpack the four different elements of what he's praying for. And so the first thing that he's asking in verse 16 is that God might strengthen them. 
strengthen this group of believers. And when we come before God, we have to recognize that we come as spiritually poor. We come in spiritual poverty, and he comes and provides spiritual riches. And we've seen this language throughout this letter. Um, we've seen uh, how he, he paints this word picture uh, of how rich God the Father is. And the thing that I want you to, to, to hear in the midst of this first part of the prayer is that God does not hold back. God does not hold back on you. He does not give just enough. He does not give with a, a certain measure, but he gives us every spiritual blessing. Again, if you rewind back to chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 8 of chapter 1, he's lavished upon us. When was the last time you used the word lavished? God has lavished upon us his grace. Chapter 1, verse 19, we already talked about it. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And chapter 3, verse 8, talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. What he's doing here is he's painting this picture of the riches of God the Father and how he is giving out of his abundance to us. And the thing that's so important for us, especially in our our culture where it's so consumer-driven, is that we understand that the riches of Christ are not fleeting and empty like the riches of this world. The riches of Christ can cancel spiritual debt. The riches of Christ are the currency of grace and mercy. The riches of Christ are sufficient and unending. And there's three things that he talks about in this first part of his prayer. He talks about power, he talks about the spirit, and then he talks about our inner being. And so I want to I look at each one of those because it, it, these are words that maybe we, we don't use very common. And so we want to understand what he's praying. So let's look at power. When he's talking about power, um, the verse that comes to my mind is Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we see that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so this idea of power is that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. That's hard to believe. That's like, that's like mind blown. Like that power can be inside of me. Like that power is offered to me. That sounds like a lot more strength, a lot more power than what I could muster up myself in doing and trying harder. The next thing that's so important to see is what is the source of this power? Where does the power come from? Um, is, it, is it from within? Is it from without? Where, is the, where does the power stem from? And we know that that's from the Spirit. And verse 16 makes that very clear. Strengthened with power through his Spirit. And again, this is pushing us back to Ephesians chapter 1. It talks very clearly about the Spirit. And it says that we've been sealed. That God has sealed us with the Spirit of promise. That we have this inheritance. The Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. And that work of the Spirit inside of us is the source of that power. It's not coming from me and trying harder. 
And where are we being strengthened? It says in the inner man. And the passage that, that comes to mind for inner man is 2 Corinthians 4. Um, you may have read it. It says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is a picture of sanctification. God is making us more and more like Christ. Even though our outer man is failing, even though our outer man gets sick and cancer and ultimately dies, our inner man is being strengthened. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. And so there's this picture of what's happening inside, and that's what Paul is wanting this church to understand. This is what he wants the believers to understand, that there is power, and you're being strengthened in your inner being. When I think of this idea of being strengthened, um, another verse uh, comes to mind. Uh, Philippians 4.13, very common verse used uh, all the time. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we use this verse a lot, and, and oftentimes it's pulled out of context. But it's relevant here because we're talking about being strengthened. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what we can do sometimes is treat that verse as like a blank check. It's like, if I want to say anything and do anything and have these, these dreams, um, God's going to give it to me because I'm doing it and Christ is strengthening me. And the context of that, that section um, in Philippians is so important. What he's talking about in that section is um, being content in any and every circumstance. Being content with being brought low. Um, and so what he's trying to do here is say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, who gives me strength, but it's not necessarily that I'm going to be able to, to, to go out and, and, and just name it and claim it and say, this is what I'm going to be able to do. It's going, it's saying, I'm going to have this strength that resides inside of me. And that could be being brought low. That could be being elevated. It's going to be content in any and every circumstance. And so taking that verse in context really helps us to understand what it looks like to be strengthened. And to summarize kind of this first part of his prayer, what he's really trying to, to, to help the Ephesians understand is that God the Father is rich. He has spiritual uh, richness, and he wants us to be strengthened by his Spirit in our inner being. That's kind of the first um, summary of, what, of what's being prayed. And the second thing that he prays is closely connected because it brings the Trinity into, into play. The second thing that he prays is that Christ would dwell in their hearts. That's verse 17. He says this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, connecting us to Ephesians 2 by grace through faith, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have these things. And so the second thing that he's praying is that they would understand the Trinity and that this idea of power, this power source, is going to be even greater when we think about the Trinity, because you have God the Father giving the Spirit, and when that happens, Christ dwells in our hearts. So the Father wills that the Spirit be the instrument by which Christ takes over our hearts and provides our identity. And this is the gospel. This is where the gospel is so clear in this passage today. And this is so crucial to the first half of the letter uh, that's written to the church at Ephesus, and it emphasizes that our identity is that of Christ's. The reason that the riches and power of God are mine is that Christ has given me his identity. The reason that the riches and power of God are yours is that Christ has given you his identity. Christ provides his life for my own, and in heaven's accounting system and in heaven's economy, it's no longer my life, but it's Christ's life. That's why there's riches there. I think about this as uh, identity theft, almost. Um, except we're not stealing the identity. The identity is being given. 
And if we uh, did a poll in this room, my guess is that we would have some evidence of uh, identity theft. Maybe you had some charges on your card that you didn't actually uh, put through. Maybe somebody tried to get some personal information about you to be used for their gain. Maybe you've had uh, somebody try and file something with taxes. Like, identity theft is common. And what happens is they're getting their information and using it, getting your information, using it for their gain. And it's not because you put it out there. It's not that you said, here's my PIN, here's my social security number, here's my bank account numbers. It's like somebody went and got that. And what's happening here in this identity swap is that Christ is giving it. He's willingly giving us his identity. He's paying the highest price to do so by giving his life. And what happens then is we now are seen as the righteousness of Christ. We give our sin. That's all we bring to the table. He gives his righteousness. And when this progressive uh, Trinitarian transaction takes place, the end result is power. We see power. And when you try and turn on a lamp or try and turn on something electric, you can tell instantly whether or not it has power running through it or not. It's not going to turn on. And it's not plugged in. And... If there's power running to it and through it, it's going to be evident. You're going to be able to see that. There's going to be a, a, a light or there's going to be outcome from that. And when you think about this power that Paul is praying for this church and for this group of believers, the same is true for us. There's going to be evidence that there's power at work. And you can see this all throughout the gospel accounts. I think one of my favorite um, uh, examples of power is when Christ heals uh, blind eyes. I'm wearing glasses today, so I'm kind of connected to this idea of like blind eyes being healed, right? So think about this. You have somebody that's born blind from birth. Those pathways never develop in their brain. There's two parts to seeing. You've got to have eyes, but you've got to have these, these pathways that are developed in your brain. And this person has been born blind from, from birth. They can't see, and Christ walks up and heals. And the power goes out, and he's able to restore sight to the blind. And it's just, it's incredible. I think about um, uh, Jesus standing at the temple gate. And I think about, uh, he's with, there with Peter and they're asking him, are you going to pay the tax to get in? And he says to Peter, go down to the sea, throw your hook in, catch a fish, open its mouth. There's going to be enough money in that fish's mouth to pay for both of our temple tax. Like, what? Like, the, the power of God manifests to be able to 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 call that out and to let that happen. Like, I don't know, I don't think that's going to happen on tax day for me. Like, I don't think I'm going to open a fish's mouth and the taxes that I owe are going to be right there. But it just demonstrates, like, God is showing off. Like, there's power at work here. I think about how um, he knows the future and the interaction with Peter. And he tells Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He knows what's going to happen. Um, thinking about a future orientation, just he knows and is preparing a place in heaven for us that's secure uh, in the new Jerusalem. That's power. And if we look and spent time this morning going around the room just talking about uh, the ways that we've seen God at work and seen the power of God at work in our lives, we could fill this whole morning. Um, I think about just examples of, of, of time in the clinic and time at work and, and how people have come in with an aneurysm that is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we're watching it and we're watching it on images and then you check the next image and it's gone. And it's like, I don't have any medical explanation for this. Like, this is the power of God at work. 
I think about um, mothers that I've interacted with that have thought about, should I carry this child or should I uh, terminate this pregnancy and have decided to, to carry this, this child and the power of God at work there. I, I think about coworkers and their response to the gospel and the power of God at work in those, in those conversations. Um, in our midst right here, I, I think about Kyle and Aaron. Um, they're holding baby Selah right now. If you don't know Kyle and Aaron, they, they should not have a baby right now. Like medically, that's, that, that shouldn't have happened. And God is demonstrating his power in our midst. Church family, we serve an infinitely powerful God. And it's so helpful for us to, to think on and dwell on these things because it, it reminds us of that truth. One of the things that I think is really important here, um, a little bit of a side note, uh, this passage, verse uh, 17, uh, is the only place in the New Testament that talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts. And maybe you've said this. Uh, I know I've said it in the past. Um, when thinking about salvation, I talk about asking Jesus into my heart. And I just want to um, talk about that for a moment because uh, if you think about the context here, these are already believers. These are uh, Jews and Gentiles who have already placed their faith in Christ. So saying, I've asked Jesus into my heart, isn't really representative of salvation the way it's commonly used. And I understand what's being proclaimed. Um, what's being proclaimed is, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. But I would just encourage you, um, saying asking Jesus into my heart for salvation is, um, is really... A, almost a misunderstanding of this verse because salvation is already there. What's happening by Christ dwelling in their hearts is they're understanding more of his love for them. And that's what we're going to get into in this, in this next part of the, uh, of the passage. That's the third thing that he's, um, that he's praying for. Uh, he prays that they might grasp, this church might grasp the incalculable dimensions of Christ's love for them. And that's where he talks about uh, being rooted and grounded in love. Then verse 18 that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. And so what he's doing here is he's giving them these, these dimensions to try and help expand their viewpoint, help expand their understanding of the amount that God loves them. And what he's not doing is trying to, to show them how they need to work harder, how they need to do these things. But what he's trying to do is help them understand, recognize church, the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. So what he's doing here is he's, he's using a metaphor. He says, rooted and grounded. And so the rooted metaphor is kind of agricultural. The grounded is kind of architectural. And what he wants them to understand is, uh, I want you to be rooted. I want those roots to go deep. I want you to be, um, to be secure in that soil of God's love for you so that you can grow. That's what he's trying to help them understand. And then the second thing is this foundation upon which they're going to be built, um, architectural. I want you to understand that this is the foundation. Christ's love is the foundation, and that is going to be the strength and the power um, to, to build. And so both terms uh, communicate security to me. Both of those terms uh, show that we are secure in God's love. And the fundamental truth here. Uh, is that power for spiritual change comes from this assurance that we are loved beyond measure by a God who does not hold back. God does not hold back on us. And he's demonstrating and continuing to demonstrate his love for us. And he's doing that for all the saints. That language is talked about multiple times here in this community, this group of believers. Something that I think we really need to pay close attention to here is 
when in Paul's life is he praying this prayer? Uh, we know that the book of Ephesians is uh, a prison epistle, which means that he's writing this from prison. He's writing this from chains. He's writing this from a cell. He's an inmate. He doesn't have control of what he's doing. Uh, he's, he's, he's in chains. So that's really important for us. The other thing that we want to keep in mind is that he's writing this at the end of his missionary journeys. So this is at the end. He's in Rome. He's already visited all the churches in the missionary journeys. He's already faced worlds of opposition. He's already faced all of these trials and hardships. And what does he come back to? He comes back to pointing believers to the love for the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. And keeping that in mind is really helpful because Paul is in the midst of a trial. He's in the midst of suffering. Being in prison is not an easy place to be. He, he can easily measure the height, the length, and the, and the width of his jail cell, and it's probably not that big. And what does he do from that small, confined area? He tells believers, think about the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of Christ's love for you. He's saying, think of this expanse and meditate on that when you're in the midst of a trial or when you're in the midst of suffering. Another reference here is um, Job, uh, chapter 11. We all know when you're uh, reading through Job that he's going through immense trial. He's losing family. He's losing possessions. He's uh, afflicted uh, internally, physically, in pain, in suffering. And what happens in Job, chapter 11, is one of his friends is ministering to him. And what he tells him um, is the same thing. I want you to meditate on the expanse of who God is. Let me read for you Job chapter 11, 7, um, 8, and 9. His friend tells him, can you, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So in the midst of trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering... This prayer is still so so applicable. This prayer is still so helpful to say, what is the love of God for me in Christ Jesus? The other thing that you have to keep in mind is that the the dimensions that he's talking about here, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, these are actually nouns in Greek. They're not adjectives. We think of them as descriptors. We think of them as, this is how long, this is how wide, this is how high, this is how deep. And we think about it as, as a descriptor, but... In the Greek, it's a, it's a noun, it's an idea. And what John Stott says uh, is really helpful for us here. He says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. This idea that it's expansive and that it's going to incorporate Jews and Gentiles, one of the themes from our earlier chapters. It's broad to encompass all mankind. It's long. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and it's high enough to exalt him to the highest heaven. And so this word picture, again, is trying to help us understand, uh, think about how big God's love for us is. Think about how deep, how wide, how long. And the verse that comes to, to mind is Romans 8. How can we not think of Romans 8? It says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's so important for us, church family, to understand why he is praying this for these believers and to pray the same thing for ourselves and to understand and, and, and approach God in the same way. 
I think about uh, a picture of a downward spiral, and maybe you can relate to this. Um, a downward spiral with respect to our, our, our spiritual strength. Uh, it goes something like this. I get discouraged. Something is hard. Uh, there's a challenge. There's a trial. I get discouraged, and so I isolate myself from community. And in my isolation, I'm more prone and more uh, likely to be bound by sin. And being bound by sin, I'm more likely to be discouraged. And more likely to be discouraged, I'm more likely to isolate. And it's this downward spiral that leads to depression and anxiety and, and frustration and this feeling that God is far off and he is distant and he's not with me and I don't feel him. And what we're seeing in this passage, what Paul is praying in this passage is for the opposite. He's praying for an upward spiral. What he's saying is, God the Father is here, and he's going to strengthen you with his spirit. And when you're strengthened with his spirit, Christ is going to dwell in your heart. And when, you're, when, when Christ is dwelling in your heart, you're going to have this, this, this understanding of the Father's love for you. And when you understand the Father's love for you, you're going to love the Father more. And the Father is going to strengthen you more with the Spirit. And the Spirit is then going to allow Christ to dwell in your heart more. And then when Christ is dwelling in your heart more, you're going to understand more of this love that he has for you. And it's a beautiful picture. It's an upward spiral. It's the exact opposite. And in this upward spiral, what he's asking for, the fourth thing that he's asking for or praying for, is that they would be filled to the fullness of God. Verse 19. It says this, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And verse 19 is, is kind of restating verse 18, the last part of verse 18. What he wants them to do is to grasp the incalculable love of Christ for his own. He wants them to know something that can't be known. It's almost an oxymoron. It's almost like, I'm praying for you guys. I'm praying that you would understand this but you can't fully understand it. I'm praying that you would know this, but you don't have knowledge to be able to comprehend it. So it's kind of this idea of like, God is so big, God is so infinite, that you're going to know more and more about him, but as you know more and more about him, you're going to become that much more aware of how much there is left, of how we can continue to be filled with him. No matter how much we learn, no matter how much we think we know and see and feel and grasp, there's always an infinity left over. We may know Christ's love in some measure, but we're never going to be able to exhaustively comprehend it. And this love is designed to be experienced together with all the saints. Our experience of Christ's love is personal, yes, but it's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be felt and proclaimed and enjoyed in the context of the body of Christ. So it's personal, but it's also a shared experience. And what happens when we share this experience is we see more evidence of this power. And when I think about um, power to overcome sin, we could stand up here and say, you know, we need to try harder at fighting temptation. We need to try harder at doing battle against our sin. And when I think about this type of power that Paul is praying, when I think about this type of spiritual strength, that is the type of power that overcomes sin. Because oftentimes when I sin... This is the approach that I, that I take. Well, I was weak. Uh, I messed up or I failed my Savior. And in those expressions of guilt, there's still this assumption that I love Jesus. I just messed up. But church family, when we're, when we're caught in sin, in those moments, the love for yourself, the love for that sin is greater than the love for Christ. 
We love that thing or we love ourselves more than we love God. And so when we recognize this, it's a recognition of our need to grow in our love for him. And that's a hard reality to, to sink in, to approach sin in that way, to say, I don't love God enough. I'm loving these other things more. But Paul, when he's praying for, for overcoming sin, he doesn't tell them, this is what you need to do. He's saying, I want you to understand this. I want you to comprehend this. I'm praying that you would, that you would be able to, to experience and know this power. And that in so doing, being filled with the fullness of God, that is what drives out sin. I listed those things in the beginning, um, spiritual disciplines, uh, spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer, um, spending time in accountability and community. Those are all important things. And when we are filled with the fullness of God, those things happen as an overflow. But when we try and supersede or go around God and try and get to those things first and take Him out of the equation, we strip all of the power out. And so those are good things to do. I'm not saying don't read your Bible by any stretch of the imagination. I'm saying don't, I'm not saying don't pray by any stretch of the imagination. We want to do those things, but we want to go to the love of God first, recognize, be filled with that, and out of an overflow, those things come. When I think about this concept of fullness, uh, Colossians uh, comes to mind because in Colossians we see this idea of fullness um, really well illustrated. In Colossians 1 and Colossians 2, it says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And that's what's being offered to us, the fullness of God. Not that we can contain him in and of ourselves, he's infinite, but that he can fill us, absolutely. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all. The more we know, the more conscious we become of how much more there is to be known, of how much more we can love God and how much more he loves us than we could ever hope or imagine. If we fast forward a little bit to the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus is brought up again in chapter 2. And this is really important because I asked this question earlier, why does Paul pray this? for this church. This is a group of believers. This is a strong church. Um, Why is he praying this degree of intensity, spiritual strength for this group of believers? And the reason why is is in Revelation chapter 2. He encourages them at first. He says this in Revelation chapter 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is is Jesus speaking in, in Revelation, and he's encouraging the church at Ephesus. But then in chapter verse four he says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you, re- unless you repent. So why is Paul praying this? Why are we going to pray this at the end of our service today for us? Because our minds are prone to wander. And it's easy to forget. And it's easy to think, well, I've been walking with Christ for a while, so there's, there's other things that I need to focus on. There's other things that I need to do to, to, to grow in holiness. And what we need to do is we need to come back to that first love. We need to come back to the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, and then what that does for our love for him in response. That's the why of this prayer. And the ending of this, this passage is beautiful. It's a, a doxology of sorts. And what he's saying at the end is God is able to do abundantly more than we could ever pray or ever think. 
verse 20, uses language, again, like immeasurably more than we can hope or ask. So right now we're heading into Advent. It's Christmas season, right? Um, Kids in this room probably got your Christmas list, right? You've got the things written down that you're asking for. And these are the things that I want. And maybe we as adults don't have them written down. Maybe we do. Not saying anything if you do. But we have this list of things that we're asking for. It's, It's Christmas. These are the things that I'd like. And the problem is that we ask within the limits of our own human vision. We ask within the limits of what we can see. And God is not constrained by those things. He sees into eternity, and he sees what's needful for our soul. He sees what's needful for the souls of those that we're going to touch and those that we're going to come in contact with across generations. And seeing this, he's able to do so much more than we can ask. His love surpasses our knowledge, and his doing surpasses our imagination. I think about my kids for a second. How many kids in here would like a snack right about now? It's okay, you can raise your hand. How many adults would like a snack? I could go for a snack. This is the only analogy I can think of, but it, it holds. Um, my kids are asking for a snack all day long. They want something to eat. And that's okay. I'm, I'm their dad. I love to be able to give them a snack. But I know when lunch and dinner are coming. I know when those meals are going to be there. And if I give them a snack right before a meal, they're not going to eat. And so um, my answer is going to change, yes or no, based on what they've already eaten that day and what meals are coming up. And I don't say yes to fruit snacks every time. I Call me a mean dad. I don't say yes to fruit snacks every time. But what I do say is I, I want to say yes. I want to give them things that are healthy. I want to give them things that they need. It's not always the things that they want. Sometimes my son goes and grabs the fruit snacks anyway. And i got to take them from him and say, no, not right now. You can have this later. And it's a joy for me as their dad to be able to give them the food that they need, that they need to survive, that they need to grow. And just like that, it's God's joy to hear the things that we ask and to know our beginning and to know our end and to lovingly listen to every word and then to have the ability to do far more than we can think or imagine and then to give us what is needed and at times take away or say no all out of this deep love for his children. I think about the encouragement in uh, 1 John and this idea of assurance and this idea of knowing the security of the love of God for us. And in 1 John chapter 5, um, it's written, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And we see this continued theme here about an ever-expanding, an um, ever-growing view of an unsearchable God. The God to whom we make these requests has capacity that exceeds our capacity to even ask or to even imagine. And my prayer uh, for you this morning is that as you think about these images of, of the battery and you think about where you're at on the spectrum, do I feel drained? Do I feel depleted this morning? Do I feel full? Am I somewhere in the middle? That you would understand and experience the power that comes from knowing God loves you in Christ Jesus. That is, that is what Paul is trying to help them understand. That is what he's praying for and asking on his knees. To know a charging and a filling that comes from him who can truly fill and can truly sustain. 
that your understanding of how deep the Father's love for us this morning is expanded and that you see that it is vast beyond all measure. That your capacity of love for him in return is also growing. That you would desire the unity and community to see those around you love him more and more as well. That the way you pray would be like Paul in seeing the triune, all-powerful God fill you with his power. I was talking with my wife after uh, dinner last night and just kind of comparing uh, where we're at spiritually and thinking about this analogy of um, red and green and and all analogies break down at some point. Um, We both answered somewhere in the middle. We're, We're somewhere in the middle, but we're plugged in. We're abiding. We're relying on him. We're relying not on ourselves. And I think it's really reassuring to know that there is no end goal. When you plug your cell phone in, it's going to hit 100% and then it's going to stop charging. But with God and his power and with his sanctifying, with his making us more like Christ, we continue to be filled. And as Christ dwells in our hearts, our capacity to continue to be filled continues to increase. That's where the difference is. Spiritual life and spiritual power is not ours by our will or by our strength solely by trusting in what he provides. That's where it comes from. And you may know all of these things. You may know these basic gospel truths just as the Ephesians knew them. But Paul repeats and he prays these essentials because he knows that until these truths sink into the depth of our soul, our inner being, we're going to continue to rely on our own feeble power, our own spiritual strength, which is really weakness, to combat sin and walk with God. And the result will remain powerless. That's why Paul is repeating this. That's why he's praying these essentials. And I want to close this morning with reading Psalm 121 and praying Psalm 121 uh, because this is a psalm of ascents. You think about that upward spiral. And this psalm opens by saying, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? The psalmist is starting out asking, I'm lifting my eyes up to the hills. Does my help come from the hills? No. Does my help come from creation? No. Does my help come from myself and trying harder? No. My help comes from the Lord. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going and your out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father God, thank you so much for giving abundantly, without measure, out of your riches, your spirit to strengthen us in our inner being. God, we recognize um, these truths, and yet we also recognize in ourselves our flesh and our temptation and tendency to try harder, to earn more, um, to work at our salvation. And and God, I just pray for uh, victory over sin and flesh and death, just as the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work within us. Would you give us victory in Christ Jesus? We pray these things in his name. Amen.